Hello, this is Tommy Peeler, and welcome to Carefully Examining the Text. Our podcast today is on Psalm 86, and we're going to divide Psalm 86 into three parts, and Lord willing, look at it today. As is true of most all of the Psalms, it is first and foremost a revelation about God, a revelation about who He is. The Hebrew term Adonai is used some seven times in Psalm 86 and translated Lord. The term Yahweh is used four times and is translated with the all capitals Lord. The term Elohim is used some five times, El one time, and the personal pronoun you six times in reference to God. That makes, if I've counted correctly, 22 in all. But the point, this psalm is first and foremost about God. In the first seven verses, there is an urgent plea for God to hear David's prayer. It begins a prayer of David. Now, that catches our attention to begin with, because Psalms 84 and 85 were attributed to the sons of Korah, as are Psalms 87 and 88. So Psalm 86, the Psalm of David, stands out. And it doesn't say a Psalm of David. It says a prayer of David. Most of the Psalms that are from David are described as a Psalm of David, but this is described as a prayer of David. But the first seven verses, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am a godly man. O you, my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all day long. Make glad the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Give heed to the voice of my supplication. In the day of my trouble, I shall call to you, and you will answer me." Most of the prayer is describing who God is, but he begins by explaining a little bit of the intensity of his situation and begging God to hear, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. Another characteristic of Psalm 86 is there are some 14 imperatives in this particular psalm. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me and preserve my life, for I am a godly man. In verse 14, we will find that a band, that a congregation of violent men have arisen against him to seek his life. And in the midst of that, he is begging God to hear his prayer and to answer his cry. And God is to answer his cry because he says in verse 1, I am poor and afflicted. These two words, these two Hebrew words, are often used together in the Psalms. In 35 verse 10, in 37 verse 14, in 40 verse 17, in 70 verse 5, 74 verse 21, and 113 verse 7. There are some others, 
But in those instances, the idea of poor and needy or afflicted and needy, these words are used together to emphasize how desperately the psalmist, how desperately David is in need of God. Often those who are poor financially understand their dependence on God. They understand they need someone to help them dramatically. Blessed are those who are not financially poor, but who recognize they are poor and needy, who recognize their dependence on God. He begs God to preserve him, for he is godly. We hope to come back to that word and make reference later. He says, I am your servant. He claims to be godly, but he acknowledges that he is a servant of God who has put his absolute trust, in verse 2, in God. And in verse 3, he says, to you I call all day long, or I cry all day long. The word translated cry in verse 3 in the New American Standard is the same word translated call in verse 5 and in verse 7. As one writer says, he turns to the Lord first, last, and always. The Lord is his only option, for to you I cry all day long. Make glad the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Psalm 25, one uses that kind of expression of lifting up our soul to God. Psalm 143 in verse 5. The word for lifting up that's used here in verse 4 for lifting up our soul to God was used in Psalm 85 and verse 2 for God forgiving or lifting up the iniquity of our people. We lift up our soul to God. God in his grace and mercy lifts and carries away our sin. He forgives our iniquities. In verse 5, he bases his plea on who God is, on the nature of God. This psalm is first and foremost about God. But in verse 5, for you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. God is anxious to forgive. The word translated ready to forgive is often used as a verb used to describe God's forgiveness, but but here it's used and only here it's used as an adjective in the Old Testament. God is ready to forgive. God is more ready to forgive than we are to seek forgiveness. God is described as ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness, abundant to all who call upon him. He begs God, listen to my cry in verse 6. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Give heed to the voice of my supplications. And in the day of my trouble, I shall call upon you. He calls on God in trouble. He calls upon God when all is well, for he is deeply conscious of how poor and needy 
he is, how afflicted and needy he is. In the center of this psalm, in verses 8 through 13, he increases his focus on God. He says in verse 8, There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. There's no God like the Lord. He is incomparable. No God like him. No one can do what he can do. In verse 9, All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, and they shall glorify your name. The Psalms and the rest of the Old Testament often picture a day in which all will come to God in worship. Psalm 22 verse 27 had this idea. Psalm 60. 6 and verse 4 had this idea. Isaiah 2 in verses 2 through 4 or Isaiah 66 verses 18 through 24. All of history is pointing to God. And we're never on the right side of history if we're lifting a fist of defiance toward God. In verse 9, all nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord. And they shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous deeds, for you alone are God. As Hezekiah prayed, show, O Lord, that you alone are God of all the earth. Second Kings 19, verse 15. And so here he affirms, you alone, O Lord, are God. Some have stated that what verses 8 through 10 do is they apply the truths about who God is universally, and then in verses 11 through 13, these truths are applied to the psalmist personally. Since there is no one like God, and none can do the works that he does, since he is absolutely incomparable in heaven and on earth, in verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Recognizing who God is creates a humility in the psalmist, for he knows the way of man is not in himself, and it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Jeremiah 10 and verse 23. And he says, teach me your way, O Lord and I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. He doesn't want to be double-minded. He doesn't want to be distracted in his allegiance for God, but ask for an undivided heart, one heart in loyalty to him, like Jeremiah 32, verses 39 and 40 mention. And in verse... 11, he asked God, unite my heart to fear your name. And then in verse 12, I will give thanks to you, O Lord God, with all my heart. While he wants his heart devoted in an undistracted way to the Lord, in verse 11, he wants to praise God and give God thanks with all his heart. And he affirms he will. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all my heart 
and will glorify your name forever. Just a moment ago, we stated that verses 11 through 13 take the truths that were viewed as universal in verses 8 through 10 and apply them to the psalmist. In in verse 9, the statement was made that all nations will worship you and glorify your name. He applies that truth to himself specifically in verse 12. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and will glorify your name forever. What all nations will do, he does. I will glorify your name. In verse 13, for your loving kindness toward me is great. God's loving kindness is great. We'll come to this word again in verse 15. And you've delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. God delivers us from the lowest depths, even sometimes raising us up from our deathbed. Psalm 30 in verses 3 and 4. But verses 14 through 17 come back to his problem and his difficulty. He doesn't lose focus on God, and God is going to be praised in this section, but but he does come back to his problems and really gives us more details of them than he did previously. In verse 14, "'O God, arrogant men have risen against me. A band of violent men have sought my life, and they have not set God before you, or not set you before them.'" Psalm 54, 3 has some of the same words that we see in our text here. But a band of violent men, a congregation of violent men, have risen against him. Where can he go for help? He goes to the Lord. We stated there's some six personal pronouns in this psalm that address God. But you, verse 15, you, O Lord, are a God of merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness and truth. This statement about God is one of the most important statements in all the Old Testament, and I know that from the frequency with which it's repeated. When Moses asked God to show him his glory, God showed Moses the Lord, the Lord God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. He describes himself in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, along the lines of Psalm 65, Psalm Psalm 86, verse 15. Psalm 86, verse 15. Numbers 14, verse 18. Nehemiah 9, verse 17. Nehemiah 9, verse 31. Joel 2, verse 13. Jonah 4, verse 2. All use language similar to Psalm 86 and verse 15. God is merciful and gracious. God is slow to anger, and He is not only a God of loving kindness and truth, but He's a abounding in loving kindness and truth. God is abounding in truth in verse 15. And truth is the same word used in verse 11. When David wanted to, his heart, um, he wanted to walk in God's truth. To walk in God's truth in verse 11. 
God is a God of truth, and we should want to walk in His truth. God is abundant in loving kindness. God's loving kindness was stressed in verse 5, verse 13, and verse 15. We have stated on previous podcasts, it is used some 128 times in the Psalms, as this particular word shows us God's mercy, God's compassion, God's grace, God's long-suffering, God's kindness, God's love, all rolled up into one, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness and truth. And this word loving kindness used of God in verse 5, verse 13, and verse 15, that same root is used in verse 2 when David describes himself as a godly man or as a devout man. He is seeking to repay God's loving kindness with his own loving kindness or uh, his own uh, godliness and devoutness. In verse 16, Turn to me and be gracious to me. O grant your strength to your servant and save the son of your handmaid. That phrase, the son of your handmaid, is used in Psalm 116, verse 16, and it calls attention to David's lowliness. He has described himself as a servant in verse 2, in verse 4, and in now in verse 16, and even below that, the son of a handmaid. He was born a slave. But he asked God in verse 17, Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it, and be ashamed, because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Jesus, Jesus will fulfill this psalm, but I hope you can see the power in the psalm in and of itself. For the psalm describes the seriousness of his situation in verse 1, in verse 7, verse 14, verse 17. Above all, the psalm describes who God is. And it is to God that he goes first and last and always. Now, how is this psalm fulfilled in Jesus? It's fulfilled in him in many ways and probably in more detail than we can get to. But let me mention a few things. The word that is used for poor in verse 1 or afflicted the word that's used in the Greek translation, the Septuagint, or the main Greek translation, the word that is used is in the same family of words that is used in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. When the Bible describes Jesus as one who was rich, but for our sake he became poor. Jesus became poor and needy so that through him we might be rich. The psalmist described himself as God's servant in verse 2 and in verse 4 and in verse 16. But this term used as a noun here is used as a verb in Philippians 2 and verse 7 when the Bible tells us that Christ uh, became a servant to save us from our sins. Philippians 2 
and verse 7. The one who was rich became poor. The one who was God became man and became a servant in order to save us and rescue us. And in verse 8, there aren't any works like the Lord's. There are no works like Jesus. No one did the works he did, John 15 and verse 24. The word that's used for wondrous deeds in verse 10 in some of the Greek translations is a word that's used in Matthew 21, 15 to describe the wonderful miracles Jesus did in giving sight to the blind and helping the lame to walk in the temple. Just as the psalmist begged to walk in God's truth, in Psalm 86, verse 11, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Yes, through him, God demonstrates his loving kindness. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is slow to anchor. God is abundant in loving kindness and truth. God demonstrated that throughout every page of the Old Testament. But his most dramatic illustration of that is in Jesus. And in the cross of Christ, God is shown to be merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. But just as the psalmist says in 86.13, you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. In Acts 2 and verse 27, in Acts 2 verse 31, Jesus' soul did not remain in Hades. God did not abandon his soul to Hades, but raised him from the dead. And the word that's used to describe the strength and might of God in verse 16 in some of the Greek translations is used in Ephesians 1.19 to talk about the might and strength of God in raising Christ from the dead. Psalm 86, a powerful psalm. David describes his distress, but in much more detail. He describes the God who can deliver him, and he points to the Christ who died and raised for us. May the Lord continue to bless you.